Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Mulcast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, it's with a heavy heart we bring you news that Ireland were not keyed in on Saturday. Um, and there's lots to talk about, unfortunately. Uh, we got a surprise result that we weren't expecting. But in retrospect, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of silver linings to, to, to grasp at. John Mitchell claimed before the game that Ireland would uh, bore the shit out of England, but it turned out that England bored the shit out of us. Yeah, I thought it was a, a great piece of what I say gamesmanship. I don't know. I think I thought I thought a Putin-esque obfuscation, um, where John Mitchell and Eddie Jones, and we're talking four World Cup cycles ago, where the head coaches of their national teams, and not, not just any old national team. But New Zealand and Australia, finalists and uh, favourites going into the tournament. So, a huge amount of experience. And it, it, like Eddie, Eddie O'Sullivan, like, geez, poor old Eddie can't, can't get a job now outside of Belvedere. Um, but those guys have been, like, they've been gamefully employed since. Eddie Jones won another World Cup uh, helping out Jake White or having arguments with Jake White depending on whose who's brief you hear. Uh, John Mitchell took over the lines and I suppose a number of other coaching gigs um, in, the, in the intervening decade and a half. And the lads really knew what they were at. I thought it was a good... We were talking sort of off mic about the Super Bowl as well and about the respective defensive coordinators and the fact that like a 13-3 Super Bowl was a defensive masterclass with Bill, the 66-year-old Bill Belichick in charge of the Patriots. Uh, squaring off against defensive coordinator Wade Phillips, who's 73. I think he's 73, yeah. And just a welcome reminder that the grey hair goes a long way in the coaching booth. So, you know, briefly we talked about Mark McCall and the fact that Ulster didn't work out for him. Um, But the Saracens, he's one of the preeminent coaches in Europe. And that, you know, when when you see guys start off a coaching and it doesn't go their way, there's plenty of time. But you have to stick at it and you have to love it because it's not easy. Um, but I thought that the Joe Schmidt got out coached and it's not often that you can say that. Absolutely agree. Uh, I thought that Joe Schmidt got out coached and Ireland got out played hands down. Uh, and also Joe Schmidt got a coach hands down and like you you don't often see it um, but we had an example of it there so I, I thought that England uh, knew to target Keith Earls and it's it's a pretty old school type of thing it's just like we have a big winger they have a small winger we're going to kick it at him at every single opportunity and we're going to smash him off the ball we're going to smash him late so they got one yellow card for it I thought that Marotoji should also got a yellow card for it um, I don't know if the incidences were reversed if Atoje would have got a yellow card heading that didn't have one but it's 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 kind of I think it's the immutable law of rugby and the more I see it 
the more convinced I am of it that the team going forward gets the referee's decisions yeah. and England had the momentum like I was thinking about it this way I thought we knocked it on in the uh in the Grand Slam match for our first try, Ring Roses try last year, and even the telly ref, he didn't see it, and it was just, and that was, the momentum just went our, well, it was going our mm -hmm. way, and it just continued to go our way, so, you just get the breaks. And England set the momentum, because they played a minute and a half of amazing rugby off the first kickoff. You know, incredibly destructive in terms of their forwards carrying the ball taking the ball at pace hitting good lines and then extremely slick with backline movement holding their depth and then exposing a uh, an untested uh, fullback slash and uh, when i say fullback it's also communication in this instance with uh, with keith earls keith earls shooting out of the line uh because you know robbie manchel was was back in the backfield maybe didn't give him a call but that was a slick series of plays from England, followed by some brutal carries. That set the tone. That set England on the front foot. There's also, when we talk about a Toje and Curry's incidents, both of which were one, one late hit on Earls, one early hit on Earls. Uh, the way that rugby has been refereed for as long as I can remember seems to be more of a holistic refereeing system than an incident by incident thing I, I feel it told Jay's warranted a yellow card but the fact that Gar says had already given a yellow card mitigated against him giving another yellow card you, it's very difficult to look at a toe Jay charging into a player off the ball um and just saying oh that's that's grand you know that's not that's not anything I'm trying to remember which uh, 1980s WWF superstar would have had a, a sort of a, a hip, an off-the-ropes hip slam. It yeah. would have been somebody quite athletic if they were going to jump up that high. Yeah, uh, it was... Bret Hart or... It was quite a, quite a widespread move, actually, yeah. in the WWF. And, and Keith Earls did take a serious bump. <laughs> it should be noted as well that it wasn't just Earls. Really, the guy coming who was slowest off the line was Murray. So Murray often plays second oh, and last. Oh, for the, for the try. First try, yeah, 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 for the try. We looked at that again. Murray often plays second last in Ireland's defensive system, plays out wide, and he didn't get off the line at all. Now, why, and all of them were looking in, all of them were looking in at the ball, and because the the camera work, it focused in on, on Vunapola, so you, you can't see the wide out guys. So you can only make supposition, but all the time that they're, the white guys are on camera, they're looking in at the ball. They never look up at the man, and it should be the job of the outside man mm -hmm. to shout in to the rest of the guys, how, you know, what numbers are. Yeah. Just fundamentally. Feel the vision. Yeah, yeah, feel the vision. Like, he can see more, but they never looked. Um, and Murray so, did get left behind by that defensive line. Yeah, Ring so Ring Rose on the inside, Rose and Earls on the outside, and Murray was three yards behind them having started in the same line as him he just didn't get off the line yeah and I was wondering was part of that the fact that Vunapola it ended up being a little mini mall so I think a lot of guys take their cue from the rook ball so guy gets tackled guy places the ball scrum half goes down passes out because both Tuolagi and Vunapola uh, popped the ball out. Of, well, Tuolagi actually went down to the ground, but as soon as he went down to the ground, he just popped the ball up to Youngs and they kept the pace of the game going on and they kind of didn't give Ireland's defensive line a set. So if you think of guys doing a warm-up, you get a hold set. Murray Kinsler mentioned about Devon Toner 
being initially in on the tackle on Vunapola and then falling off and then not going back into it because he thought he might have been entering a mall from the wrong side and that he would have been entering from the English side. So there was a lot of variables to play, but there's always a lot of variables to play in rugby. Yeah. You mentioned uh, one of Ireland's non, non, non-star non performers uh, in the awkwardly positioned Robbie Henshaw. Um, how do you think he did overall? How much of it, how much of it was... You know, can we place at Henshaw being played at fullback the door of that, or how much it was actually about the loss in the collisions in the game throughout the game everywhere? Um, yeah, I think Hugo said there's there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of variables in the game. Robbie Henshaw was pretty bad. I'm a big Robbie Henshaw fan, and I would like to see him kept at fullback because. You know, for various reasons. I don't know, do you want to discuss them now? or I just thought, look, in terms of the match, he was way off it. And I think it was it was humbling to see. So I guess that when you see international rugby, I think to myself, ah, man, like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And like, here's Robbie Henshaw, who's, in my estimation, one of our best players, a pure test match animal. I I think he's a super player. I'd always have him in my team. Um... We're not just talking about physicality here. We're like at that elite test level when you're playing against Owen Farrell. There's the decision making. There's the ability to do the skills, and so it isn't just a matter of oh, like you know Nathan Hughes is twenty stone and he's just a huge man. Like you know how can you compete with this? It's everything. It's not just a rug test match. Rugby is brutal. Yeah. It's brutal. It's skillful. It's fast. It's athletic. And I thought that I thought that Robbie had the wrong body shape at the moment to be playing fullback. So the the, the analogy that I thought was um, the loneliness of the middle distance runner, and I thought of sort of Rob Carney's before him, Gervin Dempsey's sort of sparer physique compared to say Gordon Darcy, who was a fullback earlier on in his career. Who I've could seen... never be uh, accused of his career of having a spare <laughs> physique, spare tire, um, <laughs> and having. Oh no, he'll block us like the other, like the other lad be accused of being fat. Um, not with the Pilates he won't. And how how much running he had to do at fullback, and ju- but just how much that the fullback has to cover, and how much Robbie like he looked at a puff covering across. He looked really difficult. Whereas, so you've got that middle distance physique. You've got that sort of fifteen hundred meter runner. I was thinking of Robbie as more of a decathlete. And you think of any of the great decathletes and they're normally sort of, you know, halfway in the middle of the 1500 meters, like punching their hand up in the air. As having massive finish, shoulders. Having massive shoulders. Because, you know, it's all about the explosiveness. And like the guys who are the best of the 1500 meters aren't going to win the decathlon. And they're happy with it. So... I thought that was more uh, emblematic rather than symptomatic. I think the, you know, the sort of the key thing is that he wasn't uh he wasn't anywhere near the pitch of uh at, at the same pitch as Rob Carney would be as a positional fullback and as a result he had to make all these long runs yeah laterally across the pitch and it was a lot of running it's a 70 meter wide pitch <laughs> he was like 50 meters out of position quite a few times um and you see that he's such a big robust dude and because we were you can choose to keep on watching him 
and we're at the game and you can choose to keep on watching a player after the camera's gone off him. you know you could see him like breathing heavily when he's back in position and you ju- it's just noticeable and one of the other things that you noticed uh, skip sideways a little bit again and something which Murray Kinsler talked about when he was talking about Rob Carney what the what the coverage doesn't necessarily show, you know, in terms of his movement in the backfield. One thing is you don't get a handle on when you're watching on, on the broadcast compared to when you're at the game is when the game stops on television, they show you instant replays. That sounds very old-fashioned. They show you replays of the game, slow motion, regular motion. And it's very interesting because they're the things you want to see. When you're at the game, you just see all these lads run onto the pitch. The Logan, gilets jaunes. The gilets jaunes, as you call them. That's their friend from the Bayonne Express, title them. Um, and, you know, they're helping lads pull up their socks and they're giving them water. And that was such... There was a... There was a um, like we're of a bit of a jaundice view, but I think still relatively accurately that England were able to control the pace of the game when the ball was in play and when the ball wasn't in play. They were able to slow the game and allow their much larger forwards to get breathers, including a number of players who wouldn't play. Like, who, you know, you're looking at 80 minute men at 21 and a half stone, for example, in Billy Vonopola. You're going, that is unusual. But there were such frequent breaks in play and such relatively long breaks in play that England were able to control the, the pace of the game. And we did not upset them in that we played into their hands as we had previously done the other longest game I had been at in, in terms of an international. I remember the 2012 November international against South Africa, which ended 12-6. Jeez, the game seemed to go on forever. And I think there's always a case when your team is losing that the game, and you get more upset with breaks in play because you realise that time is running out. But this was, it seemed like, at the game, it seemed like a slow game played, especially between phases, at a very slow pace. England took the absolute piss during the <clears throat> during the yellow card period. They were just standing away from their own line outs for 15 seconds. And I think, in reference to your commentary about uh, the game being refereed holistically, we got a free kick very early on for some kind of infringement at a line-out, not putting the ball in quickly enough or something like that. That's right. You're never going to get that twice in a game. Agreed. Never going to get that twice yeah. in a game. He's, he's What's he going to do? Give you a penalty instead? He's yeah. never going to do that. He's trying to set out a marker, and if you ignore the marker, he's not going... Unless it's Roman Poit, who is so... <laughs> Roman Poit is... There's so much to dislike or admire about him, depending on your stance. Roman Poit would, like give the penalty and possibly a yellow card in that situation but Gar says they're off set out a stall England did it from then on but Ireland played into their hands as well yeah so we we commented about this and I spent uh, a good bit of time on Sunday morning trying to find the article only to find it on Sunday evening in something that we wrote in 2011 so we did a report card of each of the the units um from the 2011 World Cup and for Rory Best we sort of said um, so basically the the format was brief summary of how they'd done at the tournament and then what they must do better in that report card format and for Rory Best uh, said develop a tactical voice and aspire to captaincy Best was the Irish player who admitted that they were disappointed that they quote couldn't figure out something on the run 
during the Welsh match. So eight years later, um, as captain of the team, as having won a Grand Slam, um, beating the All Blacks twice, beating the All Blacks twice, that really it hit me that the leadership group. So I put Bestie squarely, obviously, uh, with that decision making, but also Manny and Sexton Murray. couldn't couldn't jack up the pace. So all three of those, like I mean, because Omani and Sexton were the two vice captains of the Aussie Tour, so they both captained their country. Um, and I just, I thought back then to Ireland beating England in two thousand and twelve when um, Redden and Sexton played eleven. 11 because we yeah, played in odd at years. Home. Yeah, yeah. On Paddy's weekend when they were coming over for a Grand Slam and they, they got the trophy afterwards but Ireland hosed them and Redden just tapped everything quickly and Redden and Sexton was a combo and it was the first time they played together uh, under one of the few times they played together under Kidney from the start and just ran them off the pitch. Absolute. And the, and the crowd all got behind it and it was it was, it was hectic. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was brilliant. It was a sort of like it was, it was one of the best matches. It's sort of your, uh, it's sort of your ideal brand of Irish rugby, isn't it? it yeah. Injecting pace, uh, not pace, sort of being frantic, but like a really high end pace, and making decisions, go 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 go, quick lineouts, changing a number of personnel and lineouts, always being beating the other team to the punch. Yeah, it's that sort of idea that like you know if we don't know what we're doing, how the hell are they going to figure it out? And uh, we were, we just, we just seemed to keep on doing the same thing, and it seemed to play into England's hands until we, were, you know, we were talking about the garbage time idea and you know the consolation try and how many guys were were clued into it. But that pick and drive, or like as pick and scamper, is because because Cronin did it, and like it didn't, we didn't have to scamper through and, and score a try for that just to try it again earlier on in the match, but just to move England back and to sort of reset their defensive line and for them to know that we're not going to be attacking the same place. That said, I thought England defended much better than they had done under the Wolfpack. I thought under the Wolfpack uh, with Dan Cole, they used to hide Dan Cole in the blind side. And, and, and I always uh, Dylan thought, Hartley as well. And Dylan Hartley, and I always thought, geez, well, like, if you're playing England, attack the blind side. And uh, Brunel's Italian team did it in Twickenham one year, and they obviously lost, but like, they, they profited hugely from it. Whereas under Mitchell, that that space isn't available. Plus, uh, Sinclair and Macavunapolo are brilliant actors. Yeah, and I think that's one of the... It's an item that you see cropping up. A new defensive coach brings in new energy. Um, and after a while of being taught to be better and better and better there's so there's only so many incremental gains you can get with like, for example Paul Guster who's a superb defensive coach Guster now the head coach of Queens of course previously defence coach of, of uh, Saracens and then England like it, the Wolfpack thing for Saracens was a bit cheesy but they were a savage defensive team mm. uh, but that influence does wear off a little bit like we saw that Ireland were invigorated even though the stats weren't quite as good as in Les Kiss's last year's defensive coach under Andy Farrell we brought a new defensive system and people the players seemed to love it getting off the line incredibly quickly smash 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 and I felt that that was replicated uh, both in practice and in uh, mindset by the English players under Mitchell 
you know, under a new coach, under this sort of um, ideologue type of figure, you know, that they really responded to it because one of the key uh, things which a lot of journalists have commented on is the amount of dominant hits or what they call offensive hits. hits. Yeah. And you, you didn't need to see the stats afterwards to, to, to see who had been the, physically the dominant team. It was really large across the game from the first minute on. And I thought that one of the things that Ireland really improved on last season was that even though a lot of the, like it was basically married to a forward, um, but it was difficult to know exactly which forward was going to get the ball. And the forwards transferred the ball very very adroitly, very skillfully um, to each other. And it made us much harder to play against. But England just took that away by rushing up and smashing. So so Ireland tried to go wide. And I thought that like, even... I watched the first half in detail. And there was one time Robbie Henshaw... Like Ireland have a three on two... Robbie Henshaw throws a terrible pass to Earls off his oh, left hand and he stalls Earls. Yeah. The guy he skips is Gary Ringrose. Yeah, I saw that. Why don't you give Gary Ringrose the ball? Who's who's a brilliant passer, who's great at straightening, who's got the balance, who's gonna cut inside. Like, why would you because you never like you don't skip. You use your numbers. Mm. And then it happened that uh Johnny Sexton had, I'm gonna say, charitably a four on two, possibly a five on two. Now Bestie was one of the guys, but he skipped two guys. And he threw it on the ground. And you're there going, like, when you're two of your most experienced backs are throwing those sort of passes, it's not your day. That's one of those, it's, that brings us, I think, quite neatly to another, uh, what, what I would consider mostly post-mortem, you know, in terms of establishing reasons, or maybe not establishing reasons, but coming up with theories why things went wrong. Sexton hadn't played in in 2018 it'd been i think about five weeks since he'd actually played a competitive minute of rugby and it had been a hell of a longer it'd been 31 weeks since himself and conor murray had played together which was the last test 26th of june against australia both players had certainly since they have both players had poor games conor murray had the worst game i can remember him having for ireland and Sexton, I can't remember having. It's easier to tell with Murray because you're just going. That was to me. That was easily the worst game he's had for Ireland. Sexton was poor, but not as, in my opinion, anyway, not quite as bad as Murray. But both of those guys did not play well. Um, and that they're so they're such important players for Ireland. That also sort of ties into. Um, you know, then you, you obviously have Henshaw playing fullback, which he hadn't played. I think the last game he'd started fullback was back in April 2016 for Connacht against Munster. Um, but it also plays into the f- just that there was when you had these two guys not playing well, you had a team which was out punched. You're going, this is this is not a viable win for Ireland. And yet Ireland were in it. And I think um, you know, a number of people made reference afterwards about not throwing the baby out with the bath, bath water. A lot of Ireland's habits are so deeply ingrained, they're really good. And this is, I think, the feature of Joe Schmidt's coaching is that 
we didn't seem to have a plan B. We just seemed to have one way of playing. We're going to go out and we're going to play our game and that was going to be enough to beat England. I don't know if he was hiding things or I don't know if just... But I, I, Ireland didn't have like specific. They didn't seem to have a specific idea. They never seen Ireland never seemed to impose. I think there there was a plan B. In my opinion, the plan B is going. We're not getting any leverage with our two three number pods. Um, okay, we're going to try. They're coming up quickly. Let's put the ball in behind them. In terms of let's go to the air. I think that is the plan B. You know the box kicking strategy. I don't think you can. When I say plan B, I think it's an alternate strategy. I don't really mm. believe in plan A and plan B and plan C. Um, but there wasn't... I don't think that the players, especially the halfbacks, could alter the pace of the game when Ireland had the ball, which we had a reasonable amount of ball. It's not like we were starved of ball. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there are <clears throat> many games from our successful recent year and relatively successful other previous recent years uh, where Ireland have drastically altered their game plan in the middle of it. Like, so let, let, okay, let's, so let's think of a, a particularly galling loss two years ago, first game of the season against Scotland. We played like a drain for, for whatever, half an hour. And then we chased it fairly effectively and really could have won that game. But we didn't. We lost... 27 22 because it looked a little earlier on. Yeah, the most A Schmidt uh, game that I can remember in the Six Nations was when we played Wales um, when they picked uh, Coombs in their second row with Alan Wynne Jones. Uh, in so the match was a draw. No, it was the game that we won fairly comprehensively and Paddy Jackson scored a late Troy. Uh, so we played in Lansdowne Road. So that would make it even an year. even year. So 2014, we won the Six Nations. Um, they picked two very short second rows. We kicked into touch oh, yeah. loads of yeah, the time. Yeah. Uh, we just had a much better, like we played Dev and um, can't remember who the other second row was at that stage. Probably Paulie. And then Dan Tui came on. Um, and we, we kept on kicking into touch and just dominating their line. We, we dominated our line and we really pressurized their line. So that was a, a game which was. Um, which, in which, like we, compl- Josh McComplete completely outcoached um, Gatland. That sounds a bit like what happened on Saturday, where there's just a positional weakness by virtue of a selection issue, and then one team exploits it furiously. Yeah, I think there was more to England's performance in terms of, I thought their line speed, physicality, and and motivation were. As I would say, as easy, as good as the All Blacks in the return match in November 2016 when they came down to Lanzar Road and kicked the shit out of us. Um, I would say that the English uh, were bigger and better. I thought that English performance was absolutely outstanding. Um. Let's not dig over how great England were <laughs> anymore and instead move on to poor, looking into our, our selection. So um, the big question, obviously, is the fullback one, but there's new injury issues to con- contend with. So Gary Ringrose is out, Devin Toner's out, uh, CJ Stander's out. Lu- uh, Keith Earls might be fit, is, but is struggling with something, definitely. Um so that's at least four changes. 
Well, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of changes, yeah. Um, the big question to start with is, do you stick or twist with Robbie Henshaw at fullback given the quality of his performance against England? I would stick. Um, I When I saw the selection or the rumoured selection, my reaction, I was excited and I thought, he's actually going to try to win the World Cup. He's, he's going to take risks. That I thought it was a very un-Joe Schmidt selection. Um, and I thought that he's going to play Henshaw as much as possible to try to get him really serious, proper game time, like five really top-class internationals uh, before the World Cup. And he's going to try to get his three best centres onto the pitch at the same time. So, you know, how do you play a best centre fullback? Um, now, the other thing I thought after the match was that um, he can only bring 31 guys to the World Cup. And what's a split going to be? And he's just, he's much deeper at centre than he is at fullback. So, say you, say you brought two fullbacks, one of whom is Robbie Henshaw, the other whom is, is Rob Carney. So, like, Rob Carney's a known entity, Strengths and weaknesses, but, you know, hugely decorated. All the rest of your form players are in the centre. Uh, and the argument being, so I was talking about Andrew Conway, I might not contradict myself. Uh, I think when you see how England targeted a small winger, I don't think he can play either Larmer or Conway at fullback if you're playing Earls. Or I don't, I think if you've got th- those three guys... As, as options playing two of them in the back playing two of them in your back three like you're just inviting a England or a team like England uh, to repeat the performance or any team yeah is a more uh, pragmatic decision not to just play Rob Kearney against Scotland and then give Robbie Henshaw another run out in the presumably easier uh, away game against Italy I think that that is pragmatic, which uh, I always have time for pragmatism, but this isn't the big tournament for us this year. Um, it's just an option. People can... I suppose there's a, there's, there's a lot of people who... They can understand me are upset that Ireland have lost a home in, in the first game of the Six Nations, but there is... A, I don't think that they set out to lose or even set out to not play great. But there is a bigger picture in that. Like, there's a World Cup around the corner. The question, the question I asked on Sunday was, how do Wales and France do in the 2011 Six Nations? Do you know off the top of your head? How do they do in the World Cup? France were beaten narrowly in the final and Wales were beaten narrowly in the semi-final. Yeah, and that's, that's what people remember from 2011. And that's what people are going to remember from t- 2019. So... Viewed through that prism. Okay, viewed through that prism, though. Scotland are in our group, so if we lose to them into the 2019, it's far more significant than if we were to lose to France or Wales in this tournament, or England. Uh, yeah, I think... Is it? It's more, slightly more significant. I don't think it's far more significant. I think when you look at those form things and it goes win-loss, win-win, each match is a microcosm in its own right. Like, the Irish players won't be going... 
Scotland beat us last time out, or we, we fucking hammered Scotland last time out. Each match happens in its own universe, if you will. That's a bit too pretentious, even for me. Each match happens in its own context. Yeah, it's discreet. So we, we lost to Wales 13 points to 19 in 2011 in Cardiff. It was the one where the, the ball boy gave... Oh, Mike Phillips, yeah, yeah, quick yeah. Throw in. I don't... Like, Wales had a different team by the time the World Cup rolled around. Uh, how different was it? Well, you know, Reese Priestman was playing out half, and I can't remember exactly the Welsh team that played in 2011, but I remember the Welsh team at the World Cup had a, had a different energy about them. They... They I had a feeling that Faletown mightn't have played against us in the Six Nations and came in. My feeling is that he came in during the World Cup warm-ups and then was just like played forever since then. Yeah, so I look, I'd, I'd say that I would like to have Chris Farrell play in the centre um, or Will Addison. Now, I'd, I'd rather Farrell <laughs> because he's played at the Six Nations and he did well and he's got he's got the physicality and he has the experience um, and I guess that would put I'd like to see Addison on the bench because uh, he gives you that versatility that he can he can cover centre and he can cover fullback and wing and wing um, so that'd be the way I'd pick it in yeah and I like I'm a Rob Kearney fan uh, and one of the things that we talked about a little bit earlier was that while Henshaw was exposed uh, in, in in certain areas of being a fullback, the guys who hadn't played, or halfbacks who hadn't played very much were also exposed in another, like a big rusty. And Rob Kearney might have exposed, he mightn't have been exposed positionally as a fullback, but he may have been exposed in another direction as a, as a guy who hasn't played much rugby. So while I'm a huge Rob Kearney fan, I, I think it would be a mistake to look at Henshaw as a one-and-done at fullback because... They have a plan for him. You know, they were looking at, they were trying to give him time in November before he got injured as playing at fullback. And all the things which, like a lot of people have talked about playing Robbie Henshaw as a fullback before. Um, and, you know, been very enthusiastic about it. And on the basis of one game, all of a sudden it's a dreadful decision. Not a, not a dreadful decision. Let's, not, let's not ascribe the opinions of the faceless masses who wanted Henshaw to be fullback to the same people who don't want him to be fullback after one game. It's just the kind of noise. But I know what you mean. There's mm. a general vibe of that, but it's not necessarily the same people yeah, saying Yeah, and I, I think that if you... I, I think that if you just say, oh, well, oh, he's clearly not a fullback, there was an experiment which didn't work. It's... I, I wouldn't do it, yeah. personally speaking. Well then, let me ask you a question. Who's the second best Irish fullback specialist after Robert Kearney? I think it's I think it's Zebo, but I certainly wouldn't be calling for his return. I think there's a much bigger picture about rugby in Ireland than um, than a game against Scotland in the Six Nations. Yeah. So, and we were talking about this idea of the the paradox of absence and how when you don't, a lot of guys when they don't play become better. So if only Rob Kearney had played against, you know, had played at fullback, he would have covered the backfield, we would have... Uh, he would have won more high balls. Safer, he, yeah, all, like all the stuff that Kearney is good at. Um, same applies to Zebo. Same applied to Peter Romani two years ago when he came off 
late, came in off the bench, started the match, stole all the line out ball, got man of the match, and uh, Jamie Heaslip. I don't, again, I don't know if they showed this on telly, but anyway, at half time in the match, they gave Jamie Heaslip a special centenarian, centenarian cap uh, for 95 Irish tests and five Lions tests. And Heaslip came out, gave a wave, got a smattering of applause, went in. And I was like, shit, man, I'd love to have Jamie Heaslip playing this match. And he's a long time gone. Like he's he's working on Google now. He walks to work. He's got a coat on. Like he's he's a he's a nine to five. He's an ordinary schmuck like you and me. And Peter Manny had a poor match, but Peter Manny was the man in the arena. And you can you can have you can have these virtues ascribed. So I think again, a lot of the questioning went: How could we leave a Manny out two years ago when he had this great match? Um. And it's the same with Zebo. It's the same with Rob Kearney. It's, it's, it's down to the man in the arena, and it's hard being in the arena. It's not the same with Zebo though, because Zebo made himself unavailable for selection by signing a contract with a club outside Ireland. So he's the one who decided to go before the World Cup and effectively sacrifice two years of his international career in doing so, which he, 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 he had to know was coming. Now, it seems he's really happy and having a really good time and enjoying living in Paris and playing really good rugby for a really good team. You've made the point before when people bring up Johnny Sexton being playing for Ireland while he was in Paris, you've made the point, which I absolutely agree with that. That was the last contract negotiated under the, uh, the, the committee rather than New Sephora. And that it had, and this is a supposition, but which I absolutely had New Sephora been in there, that contract would have been done and Sexton would have stayed in Ireland and, Never gone to France. Sexton went to France in what could be described, depending on your stance, as a fit of pique or as an assertion of his integrity as an individual, uh, in that he felt he was undervalued by Ireland. And because he had another big offer on the table, he decided to leave. Um, since New Sephora has come in, the contracts have been done much more um unfussily unfussily yeah yeah, professionally professionally so i think that's i just think it's important to understand the context of when the the other thing i think that you said about zebo is that the time he went in the world cup cycle meant that there was less competition for the same amount of money for his two-year deal. So you've got all these players who are going to come on stream in the 1920 season, having played their World Cup, um, and they're all going to want a payday. Or they're going to take their sabbaticals. And Zeebs has gone over before that, but, like, Rassing's still have a lot of money. Like, Rassing, Rassing's budget is Rassing's budget. It's going to be the same after the World Cup. So there's more for Zeebs. And Zeebo wanted to play in France. Yeah. And he wanted to have that experience, and he's doing really well. Yeah. He's playing good rugby. He's playing for a super team. And that is, like, that's a personal decision, and it's totally legitimate. And I, I wouldn't rule him out of Ireland contention, but I think there would have to be injuries. Um, I basically think there'd have to be injuries. And he'd have to be training in Saipan, just coincidentally. <laughs> <laughs> We're not in Saipan, are we? No, you have to, you have, you have to be at home, actually. Um, just to go back to a couple of the selection issues, um... There's more injuries in the back row and in the second row. Uh, Quinn Rear was picked on the bench ahead of Alton Delan, even though Alton Delan was picked in the training squad initially ahead of him. One gives you a line-out advantage 
and the kind of ball carrying advantage one gives you a scrummaging <coughs> advantage and Quinn Rue got the nod last time who do you think will get the nod this time well I think it's a it's an interesting question Liam Toland wrote an article in which he uh, talked post-mortem about uh, horses co- horses for courses selection and he he did mention that Ireland were denied a certain number of players due to injury notably Ian Henderson and Tyg Byrne but um and you you had talked about how much you would have liked to see Hendo play against England before the match uh, because you just you think that's a that's a good match for Hendo to thrive in and provide more to Ireland in that particular game than might be in a, in another game. You yeah. know, um Roo came on and, and did well. Uh, I thought most of our subs came on and you know like performed pretty admirably. You know, took the game to England, took provided a lot of pace and a lot of ball carrying heft. I thought Sean Cronin obviously set up a try. Killer had a number of very effective carries. Um, Andrew Porter played well. Porter played very well. Sean O'Brien came in and did a really good hit. Which was which great to see. Really good to see. So um, when we come to the number eight spot, going from Sean O'Brien's brief performance there as a replacement for CJ Stander. Well, just to cut, you, cut across you there, the number, it seems like the number uh, Dev is four, isn't he? Or five. Oh, anyway, so it seems like the... The conundrum in the second row and the and the number eight spot definitely have to be related. If you pick Quinn Rue, you're limiting your jumpers in the line out, and then uh, if you pick Sean O'Brien at number eight, as might be the next thing you're going to say. I mean, he's not a particularly strong. I know he's gone up for a few, but it's not really a feature of his game. And then you have Jack Conan as the other option at number eight, um, who's a stronger line out player than Sean O'Brien but he's not Sean O'Brien. Yeah, I think for me, uh, and I've talked about this in a number of podcasts, so forgiveness to our listener for um, repeating myself. I see Sean O'Brien's best position for this year as number 20, uh, as back row provides excellent cover and enormous impact. I think that the second best number eight in Ireland is Jack Conan, you know, pretty obviously. And I think CJ Sanders injured, you put in Jack Cohn as number eight. Oh, yeah, I'd be completely with that. I'd definitely pick Stander. I'd pick Quinn Roo in second row because, as well as he played, I think Delan gives you more off the bench. Um, I think that the beginning of a match is, is much harder because it's much more demanding. Uh, like, everyone is fit and fresh. And I sorry, that has a good point. I hadn't considered that the other one of Quinn Roo or Olden Delan would be the impact player you bring off. So I'd, I'd, and I'd, I'd keep Sean on the bench because I think, again, I think that 20 position is a better fit for him. I think he gives you a wider range of alternatives. Like he, he can play six, seven or eight. And I think that it's, it's almost a blessing in disguise for the, um, Joe sort of fiddled around with Conan's selection last year. Played him against the Italians. Conan got injured. He came on against the Welsh. It wasn't really. He got a match. He played the third test against Australia. I thought he did okay. And now he doesn't have a choice. And again, you go back to that idea of injury being your best selector. I think he should play him. And I think he should throw down the challenge to Jack Conan, who's, who's having his best season, to go, 
own the jersey. Because if you don't, you're not going to the World Cup. Now, he's not going to tell him that, but if you look at the split of who's available, you go, right, we've got 31 blokes. We're going to bring Van der Fleer and Levy as our sevens. We're going to bring CJ as our eight. We're going to bring Omani as our six. And we're going to bring Shawnee to cover all of it. Although he's, he's going to play less at seven because Levy's there. But Levy can play six as well if if that's the way you want to approach it, right? So, And then you're going to go, I want to bring my best players. I'm going to bring Ty Byrne, Ian Henderson, uh, James Ryan and Devin Toner. Um, and Ty Byrne is going to give me cover at six. Or maybe even start at six. If his form warrants it. And if, uh, you know, if the competition with Omani, Ty Byrne, that is a, and I... There's no place for Reese Ruddock. There's no place for Jack Conan in that. So at the moment, Conan's not going. And if everyone's fit, Conan's not going. So to my mind, he should start Conan. And Conan should grab his opportunity as best he can and put the seeds of doubt into Schmidt's mind. Because um, Sander was our, our broken face and all, was our best back rower uh, against, against England. When you... Rewatch the game, especially you see just how ferociously he contests everything he's involved in, and how frequently he's involved in that contest. Uh, Josh van der Fleer made a lot of tackles, made the most tackles on the Irish side, didn't miss any. Uh, oh man, he was didn't have a good game at all. Um, made no impact in terms of stealing or very little impact at all in terms of contesting ball on the deck. Had a couple of decent sorties at the line-out, but couldn't upset really the English line-out. And, um, you know, it was just a game in which looks England... stale. He looked yeah, like Conor Murray. He looks stale. <laughs> and it's hard to ascribe it, but the two incidences that stand out in my memory were Stockdale just burning him. And, like, Omani's out on that side... To, to give that width yeah. from the back row. And he couldn't keep up. And like it was uh it was it was a bit worrying because you're sort of thinking of Ty Byrne out there and you go, Ooh, that would be that would be threatening. You see Ty Byrne scoring that try against Bath last year. And basically just rampaging all around the place. And you like you'd love to see him in that wide out channel. So that was one. And the second one was when we pushed the English off well, I didn't push them off the ball, but we pushed them backwards in a scrum. Vunapola popped it back to Young's. Young's threw a massive dummy, or he threw a dummy to the open side, and Omani bought it. And Young scampered around and went down the blind side. So it wasn't even as though he threw like a dummy to the blind side winger and went inside him. Like he threw a dummy. It shouldn't have mattered that he threw the dummy. You see the way that, like that Courtney Laws or Maro told you, if they'd been throwing that dummy, they would have just gone through uh, Murray anyway. Even if Murray had thrown the pass, they would have gone through Murray. And that's what your blind side should be doing. So I just, it wasn't Pistol Pete's best game. So he had a great summer. Great played, game against the All Blacks. Great game against the All Blacks. But we, uh, we had a number of players off the pace and he was one of them. Some of the fans not happy with that. The crowd didn't like that. Let's see him out and go big picture. We've probably drilled down the perfect amount so far. <laughs> um, Ireland peaked in 2018. They won the Grand Slam. They won a tour overseas in the Southern Hemisphere for the first time in uh, 30, 40 years? 40 years. Nearly 40 years. And they beat the All Blacks for the second time, for the first time ever in Lansdowne Road. Doesn't get any better than that. Nothing gets better than that. Uh, 
better we go down now, get our get a kick in the ass, then get a kick in the ass against Wales when we thought we might be winning the Grand Slam, or get a kick in the ass in the in the when the warm up internationals or anyway. So my my point is basically we this isn't a bad time to lose a test match. It's always a bad time to lose at home. We never lost a home in the Six Nations under Joe Schmidt. We were fucking pumped. In bonus points at us. Like, it's a bad, bad loss. There's no good time to lose. Like, when England were going into 2003, uh, they lost, or the 2003 World Cup, they lost one game. I think it was against France and Marseille. That's my memory of it. Of it. 18 games, basically. Yeah. You know? Won, so, won their Grand Slam, finally. <laughs> thumped us. Went down. Played, played their best match. I think that team played their best match against us in Lansdowne Road and then went down and beat uh, New Zealand, Wellington and Australia in, I'm going to say, Brisbane um, in consecutive weeks. So, And that team was running out of steam by the time we got to the World Cup and was matched in the final almost by a far inferior Australian team. Yeah, and won the World Cup. They did win the World Cup and, you know, England's greatest rugby team, or certainly their captain, biggest captain, and one of the, probably then the greatest rugby team. Um, if you're talking about peaking in time for the World Cup, they didn't peak in time. No, for the I World agree, Cup. they didn't. And I think so. We had this, we had this discussion, or not this discussion, this quote that I, I seem to write down every Six Nations about: no plan survives first contact with the enemy, and then plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. So that comes up together. Um, Who said that? Uh, Eisenhower, and it was Van Mulke said it originally. Liam Toland will now follow us. <laughs> Um, and what worked for England, and they, they did a documentary, and you know they were sitting beside us, and Tim was like, "Come on, Kay, tell us about how you saved us and won the World Cup." And Kay just sort of puts his hands up in the air. But what worked was the ability to bring in uh, different styles of play, and basically just guys who were in form, like yeah. fresh guys who were in form at the time. And it's the thing to remember about a cup tournament is you don't have to be the best team in the world. You have to be the best team in those four weeks. And that's, like, you look at France in 2011, like, losing to Tonga. Like, France were a shambles in the pool stages. And, and got past a 14-man Wales. Yeah. And then outplayed New Zealand in New Zealand and should have been given a penalty by Joubert. And, like, the French for all their, or the, sorry, the Kiwis for all their bleating on about Cardiff in 07. Conveniently forget about Kano having his mitts all over the ball within kicking range. But, hey, look. You know, that's what we're here to remind them about. But the thing is that in a tournament like that, you can... I think everybody could have named Ireland's... Well, they couldn't have named Ireland's first 15 at the at the weekend because nobody expected Robbie Henshaw to start at 15. But here's the thing. In order to win the World Cup, there's going to be wrinkles. Like, we're going to get injuries. And you're going to want to pick the guys who are in best form. Not the guys who have the best names. Not the guys who have the most experience. Not the guys who have the most experience. The guys who are in the best form. And to do that, like, takes daring. and takes belief. And, like, it's a, it's a gamble. You brought it up before when you mentioned the first World Cup. When New Zealand... The, the captain of the Zealand team was Hooker Andy Dalton, who was injured going into it. They picked Sean Fitzpatrick, and he never got his jersey back ever. Andy Dalton, I don't think, ever played again for New Zealand, as far as I'm aware. No, Sean Fitz played loads of matches in a row. Yeah, like 82 caps or something like that. This is in the days when a try is worth four points, literally. 
the long and the short of it is that 2019 is a three test series against Scotland, Japan, and South Africa. If we win those and beat two tier two nations that we will win, we'll be in the semi final of a World Cup. Who of those nations can do to us what England did? I mean, the obvious answer is South Africa. South, South Africa. Africa. I would argue that their games, their best games uh, in recent years, um, the two games against New Zealand this season weren't really predicated on that kind of style of play. No, but they do have a very good coach. I'm a, a fan of uh, Erasmus as a coach, and I think his defensive coach, Nina Barr, is, is also excellent. So they have two parts in play, which England also had in play. You know, good offensive strategy and a very, very good defense. They also have the physical beasts, which England have. Maybe, maybe not quite as physical as England, but you look at guys like... Uh, <laughs> That's exactly who I was thinking of. Vermeulen, Peter Steph Dutoit, uh, Ibn Etzebeth, a plethora of other second rows. They could Luke Diego or they could pick the lad who's playing now Mostert for uh, Gloucester. Um, they've got uh, Malcolm Marks. Like they have, they could pick that same, the same level of uh, huge size, huge aggression, and they will completely. Because the World Cup quarter final, of course, you're going to be massively up for it. And deep-seated rugby knowledge, uh, like handed down through the generations, all Craven Week, Curry Cup, all, all like it's it's their national, it's their identity. Yeah, and footballers as well. You know, Andre Pollard, uh, you know, a guy who's got a very good kicking game at ten. Uh, Willie Larue, a, a guy who is can do a lot of stuff. Let's not go too far down the line with South Africa. There's plenty of year left to talk plenty, about that. Plenty of years left to worry We've that one play, away. We've got to play Scotland next. In Murrayfield. In Murrayfield. Uh, our last three results against them. What has ever gone wrong there? A 35-25 win at home and a 28-8 win uh, most recently at home. In between them, uh, it's a 27-22 defeat in Murrayfield. And this, the equivalent fixture of last week's fixture, the first of the Six Nations two years ago, when our bus turned up late, we were out of sorts, played like a drain for 40 minutes, and then nearly clawed it And then it played back. pretty well. Nearly clawed it back. Nearly clawed it back. Um, <clears throat> what's the big danger with Scotland, given the weaknesses that we showed at the weekend? Where, how do those two things fit together? The very different teams. Um, I think that... We talked about Townsend last year uh, having a real ideology rather than the ruthless pragmatism that I think Jones and Mitchell bring as a combination. Um, and I would... I'd be more concerned about Scotland's form at home and the fact that they've so... They, they seem to have a huge amount of confidence now playing at Murrayfield. And like it's it's justified. It's backed up. They're, they're much better. Um than they were. Was it Matt? Who was the last coach before? Um, Frank, Frank Cotter. Cotter. No, oh. before Cotter. Was it? Was it Matt Williams? Of Scotland. No. Was it the long-haired Aussie? Oh, was it? Was he? Is he that long ago? Anyway, they're they're miles. They're much. They're much improved um, under Cotter and Townsend. Frank Hayden didn't go directly from no. Frank Hayden. Scott Johnson, um, I think. Yeah. It was Scott Johnson. And what's Ireland? Scotland finding with uh, 
scoring tries, like, you know. 10, 13, and 15 for Scotland are all yeah, exceptional gas. attacking players. England, uh, Scotland don't have the personnel to do to us in terms of uh, physicality what England did. Their second rose is uh, a... Toulouse. Toulouse and Gilchrist. Well, I was going to say it was a black and white affair. There were no grey areas there. Oh! <laughs> um, thank you very much. Uh, how do they compare with the missing greys? Um, not not well, but they're not bad players. But Johnny Gray is like a, the Scottish Alan Wynne Jones, that important and that um, reliable for him. He's he's really really like he's a rock solid tight head lock, huge tackle count, huge work rate, extremely physical. Uh, uh, Richie Gray is the flake here. You know, it's it's sort of shorthand to say the more talented of the two. But he is an ex- like a ridiculous athlete. Well, Richie Gray hasn't started by my reckon. I don't know what he did uh, even during the summertime. Like, I, I don't think he started for Scotland since they got annihilated in Twickenham in 2017. I certainly really? would have the the two lads, Gilchrist and Toulis, pretty much sharing the jersey. Swinson gets an odd match uh, and Johnny Gray's a constant. So, yeah, they'll miss as... The miss as he's the Scottish element, Jones, yeah. Because it seems an area of uh, it'll it'll be an area of big competition for Ireland, given that we're down to our one of our front rank of four very good front or second rows. Uh, Scotland have two halfbacks who are playing in France. One of whom is an extremely harem scarum player, and that's something that I think is also, even though I said I didn't want to go too far down the. World Cup route just yet um, is common amongst the Japanese team as well. Like, do you think our sort of the rigidity that you we we criticised in the Schmidt team uh, for the English performance and the lack of changing? Do you think that's a good tool to combat a kind of harem scarum approach from Scotland? Would it be fair to characterise Scotland's? Ca- Approach is harem scarum. How would you characterize Scotland's approach? <laughs> no, I, I think I think with Finn Russell there, um, it oscillates. Let's put it like that. He misses. He mixes what the sublime with the ridiculous. I. It, it's, it's going to come like a lot of these things come down to the the sharpness, to the lack of errors to consistency it, it bucketed rain in Paris so I'm not going to talk about Scotland but it bucketed rain in Paris on Friday night and France were 16 16 nil up and I was really interested in how, how Wales would would play the second half and what would they do um because Wales you know the Liam Williams is unlucky to have his arm stripped at the end, but it was it was it was a great line, and then it was a really good tackle um, by Pickamall. And Wales stuck at it, and they got breaks. I mean, Hughes and then like Vam in his brain fart. But like the thing about Wales was they they stuck at it, and no one more than Thomas Williams, and who scragged Cami Lopez. So a lot of the time, like you know, fellas seem to charge up and then get sidestep and miss, but he. He charged up and, and caught Lopez and caught him in the middle of the pitch. And oh, when he was attempting to kick. When he was attempting yeah, to kick. Yeah, made him look silly, on. yeah. 
he ended up scoring off consequence number of phrases and then ended up scoring um, Pass, uh, from, from that scrum. Vilemsa and yeah, Antonio. Yeah, from from yeah. that scrum. And the, the reason that I mention it is because it, that was all energy. And that was just like little moments in the match. Because a few minutes later, the guy that he ran past, Williams, so the ball went right, went blindside, and the French shot up, uh, Lopez leading the charge, and who was inside him? I think Fafana inside, or Fafana and Lopez anyway were beside each other, and they, they were charging up. So Jones cut, cut back in, the winger. The um, old Brian O'Driscoll move. Yeah, and your man Williams uh, hadn't moved an inch. He was like a, a golem, just standing there, just like so lazy. He hadn't come off the line, didn't move, because the, the two lads had shot up. And that, to me, encapsulated that for all the sort of the talk that I would just indulge in about strategizing and changing it up, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's a, that's a, a neater way of Van Molke's phrase, that it's just little, it's little incidences. And Wales were all energy. So then, later on in the match, Lopez missed a kick in front of the posts. Wales dropped it out. And I meant to look up, and I'm going to say Apaches, Wales bombed after the ball, all of them. And they they caught France in their own half, and like they turned it over. And you're there going from a nothing 22. They just wanted it. They just all chased after it. And they played the French off their feet. So why am I saying that? It's it's going to be a big question for Ireland. And it's going to be a question of who plays well. Uh, from our perspective, like from Ireland, like Ireland definitely have the talent to play to play well and have a match. But the question is, who's going to do it? Because, because the fact that you played well last year to win a Grand Slam doesn't guarantee the fact that you're going to play well this year. You're going to get an opportunity to play well. But if Jack Conan plays really, really well at number eight, move CJ over to six. Unless Peter Armani plays really, really well. And if Sean O'Brien comes on and plays really, really well, then you've got a question to go, you know, should we start Shawnee? I, I think his best position is 20. But like, look what he does when he plays. There's, that, that, that's what you want. You want that competition. So what are Scotland going to do? I think it's more important what Ireland do over there. I think it's more important how Ireland react. I think it's more important the sort of accuracy that Ireland demand. Um, intensity, though, intensity. as well, from the get-go. Schmidt mentioned it uh, in one of his post-match interviews, I think the day after uh, it was reported. Like, he, goes, he didn't feel the same level of energy as it had been in the change room prior to the All Blacks game. Uh, I'm always a bit wary about saying stuff like that because it's so hard to quantify. how, But it is visible on the pitch, and I think that Ireland will be fuming because they were bullied by England they were bullied like Schmidt said it Omani came out today in a press conference and denied it and all the journalists took it pretty meekly but like Jesus right in front of you lads it happened you know and there's going to be a lot of people in that Irish starting team if they're retained for a selection who have a point to prove to themselves as much probably more so than anybody else to themselves first, then the coach, that they are the dominant team out of themselves in Scotland. And I think Ireland will put in a really, I think the Fords especially will put in a ferocious performance. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the game. I'm looking forward to seeing that. And I think that Andy Farrell will have a big job in turning that up in the, uh, in the, in the away dressing room 
saying, go out there and smash these guys. You're better than them. Let's go and knock these guys' teeth out. Oh, my head.